You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader sits down with Dr. Aparna Ramaswamy, a representative from the Embassy of India, Washington, D.C., and faculty from Johns Hopkins University to share his thoughts on consciousness and meditation during the summer meditation series titled Learn from the Masters. Namaste and welcome again, Dr. Nader. And I've been thinking of what we spoke about. You know, when we talk about transcendental meditation, and of course, TM is frequently associated with the word mantra. And again, when we spoke about Vedas, one of the aspects of Vedas is the mantras, is the samhitas. And I'm curious what the connection, if any, between mantras, Vedas, and the TM process. Beautiful. Mantra Brahmanayor Vedanam Dhyam. It means mantra and brahmana is what we call Veda, is what we call Veda. So there is mantra is sound, and brahmana is the mechanics of transformation of sound. Marshi likes to call it the silence between the sounds. So Veda, we have discussed on the previous session, is natural law. But in what way it is natural law? And when you so beautifully asked, which aspect is it of natural law? Uh, Which part of natural law, which part defines natural law more clearly or something like that? It's because we tend to see Veda mostly as teaching on the level of the intellect. So you have commentaries on the Veda, you have translation of the Veda from the Vedic language and the Sanskrit into modern languages, and then people study those Vedas. So you have Ayurveda, which talks about health. You have Sthapatyaveda, which talks about structure of housing and building and architecture and city planning and all of that. And you have Jyotish, which talks about the planetary system and the movement of the planets. And all of these are important knowledge on the level of intellectual analysis and on the level of their meaning. So the meaning is important. What Maharishi Mahesh Yogi has really focused on and has shown is that it's not just the meaning. The meaning is one aspect, but there is something even more fundamental than meaning, and that is the sound itself independent of its meaning. Meaning is always there. It reflects itself from the sound. There is no no question. But ultimately, it's the sound itself totally independent of meaning. And even if it doesn't have a meaning or you do not understand its meaning, it doesn't matter. The sound creates some effect. And it's the sound and the silence that really are the most basic aspect of natural law, of the laws of nature that Veda represents. How is this so? What does it mean? What does it mean? Marshi said that he thought and he cognized, I feel like this, 
that if Veda is natural law, the structure of the Veda has to be in accordance with structure of natural law. Natural law doesn't mean the law in the jungle, of course, <laughs> because sometimes you say natural law and people feel you go into nature, you go in the jungle and you live there and you devoid yourself from daily living and all the you know, things that have been created. It's not really what is meant, although it is part of it, but it's not what is meant. What is meant is the laws that structure life, the laws that are the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, the law of biology, the law of behavior, of sociology, psychology, the relationship between people, the relationship between nations, the relationship between past and present, what brings to you what comes to you. You know, we call it karma. An action leads to some reaction. The reaction leads to some repercussion. These repercussions are in the samskaras, in the karma, in the dharma, and it's a complex thing. But what manages all of these things? What makes the flower grow? What makes the tree produce the fruit and then the seed and the seed produce another tree? What makes the galaxies work the way they do? So this is in general natural law. And of course, what manages our own life, why we have happiness, why we have sadness, why we have success, why we get good luck, why we don't get good luck, why this happens to us. All of these are managed by natural law, by the laws of nature. And Marshi felt that if the laws of nature are acting as laws act in an orderly, organized way, then they must have and create structures. And those structures, if the law of nature is perfect, those structures must be also perfect. So the logic is, like any scientist would think, if Veda is natural law, is knowledge of natural law, then the structure of the Veda must be like the structure of the laws of nature. And so what he did is look at how Veda is structured. And he started with Rig Veda. Rig Veda is the main Veda that then is, you know, have Sama, Yajur, Atharva Veda, etc. And that Veda is structured in a very organized way based on how knowledge is organized. Now, how is knowledge organized? What is knowledge to start with? Knowledge is a knower coming into contact with an object of knowledge and there is a connection between the knower and the known. So there are three values in knowledge. There is the value of the knower. Without the knower, there is no knowledge, obviously. Without something to know, there is no knowledge, of course. And without a connection between the knower and the known, there is no knowledge. Because if the knower sits by himself or herself and the object is sitting by itself, then they're not connected, so there is no knowledge of the object. So these three values are a key aspect of how consciousness, because it becomes conscious of itself, starts to become all aspects of knowledge, and that's how the Veda emerges. This is a whole topic which is really fascinating. We can come back to it, but this is basically its basic strength, its basic uh, outline of what it is about. Knower, knowing, and known. Knower, knowing, and known, in the Vedic literature, Maharshi says, are Rishi, the knower, Devata, the process of knowing, 
and chandas is the known, the aspect of knowing. Of course, chandas means also the meter and how the things is structured, but it's the physical aspect of the emergence of knowledge. So everything is based on Rishi Devata Chandas, these three values. And then there is the Prakriti aspect. The Prakriti aspect is that which is the process of manifestation has these different values of ego, intellect, mind, then the Mahabhutas, which are space, air, fire, water, and earth. So these are the elements the element of empty space, the element of gaseous reality, the element of transformation, metabolism, the fire, the element of fluidity, so the water, the element of rigidity or structure, that which gives ultimate structure. These are the eight prakritis as described in the Bhagavad Gita and in the entire Vedic literature also. So these three organized with each other they create the Veda. And so when Marshi looked at the Veda, he found that these three and these eight combined together create the entire structure of Rig Veda as the basis of its structuring dynamics. And he shows how it develops from the first sound to the first akshara to the first pada, richa, sukta, then mandala, etc., etc. So this is details. But what he studied this on the basis of purely structure and sound. So what is structure? Is how are the sounds structured? Which means how many syllables, how many sandhis stops there are between the syllables, how many padas, how many richas, how many suktas, and how they develop. So he looked at Veda as sound and silence. Basically, it's the expression of sound and silence that is what represents the laws of nature in their structure and their function. So this is to give an idea of what it is. Then he looked at, for example, let's say something that everybody is used to, yoga. Yoga is, of course, by Patanjali. They are yoga sutras. Many people who are practicing yoga these days, but they don't really have interest or time, or they don't look into where does it come from. It comes from the Veda. It's one aspect of the Veda. It is one aspect of the darshanas also, one aspect of the six systems of Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Yoga, Karma, Mimamsa, Vedanta. And the yoga is the unifying value. So we're saying the unifying aspect, that which unifies, that what yoga is, it unifies. It unifies mind and body, unifies mind, body, and environment, it unifies environment with society, with the world. It's that which creates the unity underlying all diversity. That is the sap that we talked about that creates the tree. One sap becomes the flower, the branches, and the fruits, and all of that. On the surface, they look different, but in their depths, they are all the sap. The sap that becomes the flower, that becomes the fruit, the sap that becomes the leaf, becomes the branches. So there are two different levels of seeing, of perceiving, of experiencing. There is the surface level that is the differences. It's beautiful. It creates a beautiful world of diversity. And there is the deeper level, 
the level of the unified field that we talked about, the level of pure consciousness, which becomes all this diversity, the level of the sap, which becomes all other aspects on the surface. And so yoga is that which brings you to that reality of unification, to unifying what you think are different. You think mind and body are different. Modern science discovered there is an intimate relationship between mind and body. On this surface level, they are different because mind is abstract, is thinking, body is physical, you can touch it, you can burn it, you can wet it, but the mind seems to be there. Of course, you can touch it through the feeling, you can make it change its relation, but that's a different story. Uh, but still there is a continuity. We know today from modern science that there is a continuity between mind and body, between consciousness and the physical physiology. Now, yoga is that which unifies all of this. Yoga has four chapters. The yoga book of Patanjali has four chapters, and each chapter has a number of uh, sutras. Sutras means aphorism. And each aphorism has some kind of a meaning, some kind of a function, of course, in it. And these four chapters are very well structured. And Maharishi feels that this is, for example, the structure of the unifying value of natural law. So somehow, when you unify things on some level, there is this structure of four values with each having its own different parts. So he asked me as a scientist myself, a neuroscientist and cognitive scientist, this is what my basic training was as a medical doctor. I did neurology, but I also studied brain and cognitive science. I have a PhD in brain and cognitive science. So I was very much into the brain and how it works and how it cognizes, how it perceives, how it sees things. And so he told me, find how is the brain, for example, or the nervous system unifying things? How does it work that it creates unity? So the way it does this is, when you look at it, is by having more connectedness between the different lobes of the brain. So the brain receives information, specific information from the outside, you know, you see a flower, the eye looks at the flower, but when the flower projects its individual photons through the light that is reflected from the flower, it goes through the retina and it activates different individual neurons. So the neurons are independently the final terminals of the retinal cells, different conic cells and like that they get excited or inhibited in different ways by different frequencies. And so now the eye actually, the retina doesn't see the flower. It's just different, different excitations. So these are the specific values. They get channeled through the thalamus and then from the thalamus, they go to the nervous system, to the brain, to the occipital lobe in this case, and then to different areas of the occipital lobe. And then the individual compares it to what he knows, what she knows, what she has experienced previously as a flower that has been given a name. Then there is an association with feeling, an association with memory, with smell maybe, an association with this and that. And then there is a whole interpretation of these different inputs 
that are put together to give us the experience of flower. That is a flower. Even though there are so many specific different colors, different shapes, different things, we end up creating a wholeness, which is more than the sum of its parts, and we call it a flower. Now, of course, we can extend this to a bigger wholeness, like we see a family. They are also different, but we know they are a family. So the brain takes all of this, digests it, and says, yeah, this is a family. When you say it's a family, is unifying those diversity values, a child, a mother, a father, an older child, a younger child, a grandparent, a grandchild. They are so different, different looking, different age, different shapes. Yet the brain has that concept of unifying and say, well, I put a category on all of these, and that is a category of family. How does the brain do that? By connecting the different parts of its functioning, the processors that are in the brain. Suppose you have a processor for color, a processor for shape, a processor for age, a processor for relationship, a processor for that. And they talk to each other and they create a unified concept, which is the concept of a family or the concept of a flower. So that is the unification. So I told Maharishi this and he says, yes, so look at the structure. Now we know the function. The function of unifying is happening in the brain like that. What is the structure? Because these are the structures of unifying value in yoga. What's the structure of the brain? The structure of the brain that it has four lobes. Each lobe has a specific function. And in these lobes, there are different gyri and different parts of the subdivisions of each lobe that have itself its own structure and its own function. And when they are all connected together through the association fibers, then they create a wholeness which is more than the sum of its parts, and that is the unifying value. Now, when I looked at this, I found that actually the lobes of the brain correspond to the four chapters of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And not only that, even the sutras themselves as values can be actually put on different parts of the brain and map the brain as being actually representing the yoga sutras one by one. So not only we have the four chapters, but we have also the individual subparts that correspond to the book of Patanjali Yoga Sutras. And therefore we see here what it means that the structure and the function that we see in yoga are the same as the structure and function of what we see in the brain. And that is really fascinating by itself. Now, it becomes much more fascinating when you look at the 40 aspects of Veda. We said we have 40 aspects of Veda. Each is different. They're having different function, has different structures, having different things. So if you even forget about the meaning that is present in this Vedic literature, in this Veda, and just look at the function as Maharishi beautifully defined it, and its structure, you find they are the same. Which means we truly are a representation, a physical representation of Veda. 
which means our nervous system, the way it is structured, why we have so many nerves in our vertebral column, why we have so many divisions in the thalamus, why we have so many aspects of vision, of hearing, of processing, of knowledge. It is, the Veda is exactly the same. It is the same one-to-one correlation between all the Vedic aspects that means Rig, Sama, Yajur, Atharva, Shiksha, Kalpa, all of them, one-to-one correlation with the human physiology. Yes? If I might ask a question, I'm sorry to interrupt there. Well, you had made a point about the Artha and Shabda, that in the, uh, when you're reciting the Vedas, it's not so much the meaning necessarily, but it's also the Shabda, the actual sound and the Anahata, the unstruck silence between the words. So when we talk about corresponding Vedas and the various Smritis to the human physiology, could you speak or clarify for me, is it the sound, the vibrational intonation of the recitation of the Sutta or the Sutra, or is it the meaning that you're corresponding to the human physiology? It is actually the sound, the structure of the sound. Structure of the sound means how many divisions there are, where there are big silence, small silence, you know, these sandhis, these different divisions, and like that, that are there. But then from the sound, if we take the meaning, we have an idea about the function. So like we said in yoga, it's actually the sound, but to know where these are, you study the function by looking at the meaning. So you look, yoga unifying, where is unifying in this part of the nervous system? Now you say, what is the structure of the nervous system? What is the structure of these sounds independent of their meaning? Because now we have said what the meaning is and you find the exact same correspondence. This is the beauty of it because the structure is quite rigid. You know, it's not quite, it's fully rigid. <laughs> That's what it is. You know, there are some places where it can have a little variation between one individual and the other. And that's because we are different. Some of us will be more on the expressing value. Some of us will be more on the self-referral value. Some of us will be more interested in colors and shapes and things. That's what makes our different. But we are all basically the same. We are all Veda. We are all knowledge. We are all Vedic literature available within us. So when we say Vedoham, I am the Veda, it's not just some nice inspirational idea. It's actually a physical reality. When the religions say humans are made in the image of the natural, divine, natural law or God, that is a real thing. This is the dynamics of nature. God, we can say, Or we can say, you know, natural law is the will of God, if you like, or you can just call it natural law, depending how you believe. But in modern science, it's natural law. So we can say it's natural law. That's how we see, this was like a preparation to see the value of sound, the value of sound on a vibrational level, as you beautifully highlighted and expressed. It is actually the sound that creates the effect. That is the most profound aspect of the effect. It is not only the meaning. The meaning is one aspect, but it's not even necessary to know the meaning or look into the meaning to create the effect. 
And there are studies now being done on this. We have done our own studies. We have uh, what we call Vedic sound technology, where listening to the Vedic sounds has a healing effect on these different parts of the body because they correspond to those vibrational frequencies and sounds. And therefore, just by listening, you get the effect. And you see, for example, in India, people listen to the Sanskrit. Not too many people understand the sounds of the Sanskrit. So people might say, what is the meaning of that? You just listen to those sounds and you don't even know what is being talked about. Well, if you listen to beautiful music, you feel soothed, you feel happy. You know, you might not understand the notes, what each note is and how high it is and how low it is. But the harmony, the sequence, is creating an effect that makes you feel happy, that makes you feel soothed or makes you feel melancholic or whatever, different music. Now, this is more basic than music, more fundamental, I would say, not basic in terms of simpler, but more fundamental. And it reverberates with the way our physiology is made. And therefore, those reverberations are important in structuring the physiology in a proper way and that's why we have these Vedic sound technologies, different from transcendental meditation, which I will come back to. But there are these techniques that have been developed by Marshi where the use of Vedic sound can have a healing effect. And of course, many will feel, oh, what is this? This may be esoteric, uh, etc. But now it's very interesting that recently, like a year ago or so, in Scientific American was published an article by MIT researchers on the effect of frequency of light and frequency of sound on actually the plaques that can be accumulated in the nervous system that are usually causing Alzheimer's disease. See, we have a problem with Alzheimer's disease, which is there is no real cure at all, and there is no treatment that is effective. And so that made scientists look in all directions, and they found that a certain frequency of light or sound actually breaks those plaques. The plaques are the deposits in the nervous system that contribute to sen senility and uh, memory loss and Alzheimer's disease. And they are actually broken, they removed, they are cleared. And this was published, and it's from MIT and published in Scientific American, that starts to show the importance of these frequencies. I've heard that also in India recently, many have tried to use some sounds, Vedic sounds, in the cure of diseases. So this is all in the, in the right direction. Now, if you like, this can bring us to the topic that we started with that we haven't addressed really well, but now we have a good overall view that will help us understand how transcendental meditation works and why does it work so well and why you know, we use a certain mantra that is appropriate for the individual. And the mantra is given, of course, also in a special way where the teacher does a ceremony to the tradition of master in gratitude for this knowledge that we have received. And this prepares the teacher and the student to take the sound in the proper way. Because it's not just a sound that you, know, you can discuss, I can give you many sounds now, will they be effective? It has to be given in the proper way, in the proper setting, so that what we are transmitting is the development of consciousness. It's not 
just some surface mechanical aspect, which it is on the level of science, on the level of its systematic procedure, but it's systematic when we do it properly, when we do it in proper tune. That's why we hold on to the Vedic tradition. We hold on to the teachers who have given that. And the transcendental meditation is always taught on behalf representing the tradition that it comes from. And that's thousands of years tradition. And we will maintain it always like this. So no matter what people might say, well, it's much simpler, much faster. If you just give somebody sound and sit, close the eyes, do this and do that, you will not get the effects of transcendental meditation. You might get some superficial effect because the sounds, the mantras are always soothing to the mind. But what we want is not just some soothing effect, not just some moments of feeling happy or some moments of feeling better or getting our mind away from worries, etc. What we want is transcend. That is the term transcendental meditation. Now this brings us, after all of this, to define what transcendental meditation is. Transcending means to go beyond. So it's not a process of managing the thoughts, of analyzing, of manipulating, of focusing or contemplating. All of these things have their own effects. We're not trying to compare this to that, but what we are saying is it's different from transcending. Transcending is to go beyond. To go beyond what? To go beyond everything. <laughs> Even to go beyond the mantra, to go beyond the sound itself. And go where? Go to the transcendental pure consciousness that we talked about in the last session to the source of everything. So if you are from a Vedic tradition, you can say the source of everything is consciousness. If you are an objective scientist, you can say it's from the unified field. So whether you like to equate them or not, what we are saying is you go to that value, which is the source of everything. So we usually compare the mind to an ocean. Mind is an ocean, active on its surface and more and more quiet as you go in its depths. When you reach the depths of the ocean, it's absolutely silent, absolutely quiet. In transcendental meditation, we take a dive from the surface of the ocean, which means the place where we are thinking, and let the mind, guided by its own nature, to search for more, because that's another aspect uh, that is very important about the nature of the mind. That's why we call transcendental meditation natural. It dives towards that area. So the dive is happening completely naturally. Why? Because the mind is looking for more. The mind is interested in something more charming, something that gives it more happiness, something that is more soothing. You know, if you have a honeybee buzzing around, and it makes noise, and you suddenly see it become quiet, why does it suddenly become quiet? It's not that somebody's forcing it or holding its wings and like that. It becomes quiet because it finds the nectar. It's attracted to something soothing, something charming, something it wants, something fulfilling. It wants nourishment, and that's why it stops buzzing 
and it's budding, searching around until it finds the nectar and it settles on it. So you don't have to force the mind or manipulate the mind to get it to settle down. What you have to do is show it something or give it something that is fulfilling, that is attractive. You know, when we are listening to something we like, music or a movie or something, or a discussion, the mind is attracted by that. So even if the noise happens, we almost don't hear it. Or if we hear it, we don't pay attention to it. But if we are doing something that is not so attractive, like reading a book, for example, that is not so pleasant or not necessarily so attractive, then suddenly we find our mind listening to something else. Maybe a nice music started nearby and you find your mind going to the nearby music without making an effort. So there is no need to make an effort to take the mind from something less soothing to something more soothing, more charming, more attractive. Since pure consciousness is more than the most, it has everything. It's the unified field. It has fullness, it has shanti, it has peace, it has energy, it's satchit ananda, pure bliss. Then when you give the inward direction of the mind, the mind naturally dives towards that field. Now, on the way of its diving, it settles on a mantra. There is a technique, that's the technique of transcendental meditation, that makes the dive softer, soother, and the mantra can actually be in tune with natural law because it comes from natural law, and therefore it is able to go to these deep levels. Other sounds that might have meaning or might have association with something will keep the mind on the surface. Why? Because on the surface, it has a meaning. If you take sound like a flower, the flower has a meaning and the meaning is rigid. And therefore, if you take any sound like a flower and try to use it to transcend, the mind will be stuck with the meaning. There will be association with something on a subtle level. Even if you try not to associate it, you cannot because it has a very specific block in the nervous system that associates it with it. That's why we use sounds that have no meaning. So the mantras that are used in transcendental meditation are soothing sounds that come from natural law that are used for the individual, that are taught in a special way, that are given in a special way, and that allow the mind to settle down guided and helped or just supported by a sound that is used. And there is, of course, a technique, as we said, of how to use the sound and how to take the sound and how to use it to transcend. And to transcend means to go beyond everything, as we said, and go to that source of energy and intelligence that creates the whole universe. Now, what happens when we do that? What happens when we do that is that mind and body and physiology all improve because they are upheld by that value which supports all the other aspects because we come from there. We are the product of natural law and when we align ourselves with our own true inner self, we discover and we find that infinity within us, that beauty within us, that fullness that is within us, that bliss which is us, which truly is ourself. So when we say know thyself, 
it doesn't mean just know your qualities, your problems and your abilities and all that. This is one aspect of knowing oneself, but the true knowledge of oneself, the true knowledge that all the great sages and wise people wanted us to know is that we are the unified field, that we are pure consciousness, that we are the sap that appears as different aspects on the surface. And that is the reality of knowing oneself. It's not something that is just enjoyable during meditation, but it has so many profound beneficial effects. And it is the ultimate of yoga. It's part of yoga. We can talk about yoga and the Ashtanga yoga, the eight systems of yoga, and how at the ultimate is samadhi. This is what it is. It's samadhi, transcending, is going to the transcendental value. And if it is yoga, and if it is scientific, and if what we have been talking about is correct, that yoga unifies, then what should happen in the nervous system? We can predict that the nervous system will work in a more coherent way. And that's what we find. That's what we find. You take people practicing transcendental meditation, you make them sit on a chair, there is no need for any posture or anything specific, just be comfortable sitting straight, starting straight and being comfortable. You put electrodes on the head and you analyze the waves that are going through the brain. What you find is as the person starts transcendental meditation, there is a very high coherence that happens between the front and the back, the right and the left, and the different parts of the brain. This very high coherence is at the level of an experience of happiness, of bliss, an experience of peace inside, of transcending. And, you know, you can do these experiments where you know when the subject, you know, if you have this experience, when you come out of it, just press the button or something like that. And you can see physically that the brain is coherent, which means unified, which means all these different processors that we talked about that are in different parts of the brain are now working together. They're working as a wholeness. And you can imagine the benefits of this. You know, suppose you have a computer or 10 computers, but each working on its own, each processor doing its own thing, then you don't get a coherent thing. But put a thousand computers in our brain, it's a billions of computers with processors, and make them work together, then you can find solutions, you can have greater clarity, you can make right decisions. And that's what we find. It's not just a theoretical idea. We do find that people get better health. There are better grades at school for the children. Pilots, they have more ability to focus, but have broader comprehension. And we have hundreds of scientific research that have shown the effectiveness of the side benefits of knowing yourself. So knowing yourself is the main thing. The other aspects are the side benefits. Now people come for the side benefits, it doesn't matter. They it's come the because they have thing. headache, they don't sleep better, they have asthma, they have high blood pressure. It's okay, they come for the side benefits, that's fine, let them get it. But TM is for enlightenment. TM is for moksha, for liberation. We can discuss what moksha right. is if you like. And I think this is the beautiful part. I'm cognizant of your time. And of course, I'm okay. I can keep going. 
The points that I think are especially noteworthy for viewers who may not have as much of a base in it, there is in one part, like you've said, the textual canons that talk about various things, but the correspondence to science and neuroscience. And where TM comes in, I think, especially meaningfully, is the ability of the spoken sound, the vibrations, mantras, the thought sound, the simple ones that don't have meanings and interpretations that can distract the mind, that becomes a way to carry the mind to these deeper underwater levels, as you say, of that complete source of consciousness. But one of the aspects that I wanted you to especially touch upon if you have the time is besides individual gain, like you've said, whether it's somatic gains, physiological, psychological, whatever the benefits are, even spiritual benefits, one of the cornerstones of the TM movement has been the global impact. That it's not just about individual harmony, but it's about communal synchrony. How are we impacting the world we live in? And I'm so happy you mentioned the scientific research on crime and reduction of violence and whether it's an offend, offenders, juveniles, criminal systems. But that beautiful aspect of service where TM emphasizes this is not just for your self-purpose of samsara and moksha, but also to make the world a better place. And I've heard the term of the Maharishi effect. I've heard the unified field. So if you can spend whatever time you have to talk a little bit about that. Beautiful. Of course, this is beautiful. So this individual liberation, moksha, means to be free from boundaries and to know yourself to be unbounded, pure consciousness. So before addressing maybe that point, if you would like, I can just say a couple of words about moksha because it's very important. Moksha is liberation. Liberation from what? From boundaries. When you look at an object in normal setting, you see the object and you become the object. You realize, you know, you look at the flower, you forget yourself for a second, for a moment. And you are with the object, it's fine, but the object overtakes consciousness. It overtakes awareness. And our life is lived like that as we are always in boundaries because either we are having a feeling and then the feeling takes our awareness or we're having an experience of an object, a perception, a vision, then these perceptions, this vision takes our awareness. Even the thought, we have a thought and the thought takes our awareness. So we are constantly not ourselves. We are bound by different, different experiences, by different people, by different situations, by different expectations. We are bound, 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 bound. What happens with the regular practice of transcendental meditation is that the mind gets so experienced in transcending in that pure consciousness that then pure consciousness never leaves us. You are never away from it. So then you get into a situation where you experience yourself always as unbounded, even while you are experiencing the objects on the outside. And that is what is liberation. That is what is moksha. Moksha is, I am no more, you are no more when you are in moksha, 
when I'm in moksha, when anybody's in moksha, you are no more bound by the experience. Your unboundedness is always there with you, even though you experience all the different aspects of the outer reality. And that is a basis for individual health, wholeness, strength, and decision and thinking in accordance with natural law. That's what we call enlightenment. You become enlightened, means you are seeing the things in the light of their true reality. And it's not something you are modifying in yourself. You are actually coming back to yourself. So since we are the Veda, you are enlivening total natural law in your physiology, in your consciousness, reaping the outer benefits, but also experiencing fullness of life, enlightenment within. Now, this unified field, we said, is the source of everything, this pure consciousness. So the source of everything means the source of my body, my mind, but also the source of her body, her mind, his body, his mind, also the source of the tree, also the source of, of the planet, the source of the galaxy. That's the one unified field, the source of everything. If you are enlivening that within yourself, it means you're enlivening it everywhere. And therefore, you are awakening in society, you are awakening in life, that value of unity, which is the source of all diversity, but which manages and maintains all diversity in perfect order. Knowing that and being there and awakening that not only awakens it in myself, but it awakens it in the collective consciousness of society. In the brain, let's take, go back to the brain. It's my specialty, but it's also a good example. <laughs> you have individual neurons. Individual neurons are really individual. They have their brain which is the nucleus with the DNA inside it. They have a digestive system because they metabolize to maintain themselves in, in their structure and all that. They have even reaction and action because they have nervous action. They transmit electricity, so they react to things. They breathe, they take oxygen. So they are an individual, actually. Every neuron is an individual with its own individual small consciousness. Now, small consciousness doesn't mean like your consciousness and my consciousness because they are very tiny. We call it consciousness because they're made out of consciousness and it's very tiny. And within its own range, it experiences maybe very tiny aspect of consciousness, nothing like us as humans. But it does experience other neurons. It reacts to them. It digests, it breathes. You know, it doesn't know if it exists or not, but it has its own level of awareness. Now, you put billions of neurons together and they lead to a higher consciousness, which is what we call our consciousness as a human being. And therefore, our consciousness as a human being is the result of many small consciousnesses that themselves don't know that we are having a consciousness that is the sum total of their activity together. Now, the same applies to society. We are our own little individual self, 
but there is the collective consciousness of society. This collective consciousness of society is like a collective consciousness of something. It's a body, it's an entity. It's a wholeness bigger than the smaller wholeness of what is making the society. But it is influenced, it is colored, it is moving and changing according to the collective consciousness of the individuals. So if the collective consciousness of the individuals is disrupted, it's not coherent, then you get a schizophrenic society that can be divided, that can be fighting each other. And what this leads to stress in the collective awareness, the weaker parts of the collective awareness, they are most sensitive because of their weakness and not ability to be strong in their own consciousness. What they do is under the influence of stress, they create crime. They don't see solutions that are correct. They see only fighting and defending themselves because they have been cornered in a sense. And they don't see there is a stress, there is tension, there is unease in society. Now imagine a society where there is individuals who have higher consciousness, who are more settled, who are more in tune with natural law. Then they create a collective society that has the same quality of the individuals that are living within it. If you say a forest is green, it means the individual trees in the forest are green. So to have a society that is peaceful, you want to have individuals that are peaceful. And that's an analogy, but on the basic mechanics level, it's on the level of where is the level of consciousness of society? Is it an agitated, tired, angry society, or is it a calm, restful environment and society? So that is how, by practicing transcendental meditation, one can influence the entire society towards creating coherence in society and therefore less crime and less problems. So does it mean that everybody should meditate so that we can get this effect? And ideally, of course, it will be great. But what is very interesting is that there are phenomena in nature, it's part of natural law, that when a small percentage of individuals, individual entities, are coherent, then they entrain the others, which means the others move in tune with them. We see this in the laser, for example, as an example, the laser beam. You know, a laser beam is a very powerful beam of light that can open tunnels in the mountains, you know, if it's really strong enough, that can burn holes in the wall, you know, it's so powerful. But the laser light, is just regular light, except it is in coherence. So instead of the waves of the light going in all directions, they get into coherent functioning and they become a laser light. It takes only a small percentage of photons to be activated in a coherent way for many, many millions and trillions of photons to start to become coherent. So there is this effect of a small percentage can lead to a very large effect in society. And that's what we have shown scientifically. When in any city, 1% of the people practice transcendental meditation, 
we have seen systematically there is a reduction in crime, reduction uh, conflicts, and improvement in other social indicators such as well-being, prosperity, economic indicators. And we have the advanced techniques of transcendental meditation, which is what we call Siddhi program. Siddhi in Sanskrit means perfection. So we said in transcendental meditation, you dive, dive, and experience pure consciousness. Once you are familiar with that, with the cities, what you do is you learn how to think from that level and how to stay in that level and activate that level. So that's a more advanced, powerful program. And there are lots of advanced techniques and programs with Maharishi's Transcendental Meditation. And uh, we have found that the square root of 1% is enough for a society to create the effect. And we have studied this, you know, even in Washington, D.C., there was a big project and it led to a transformation. It was predicted and it was a proactive study. It means it's not like we did it and then we calculated. We said, look, we are going to do this. And you scientists and your sociology and all of that, we're going to do it during a time when there is high crime and a time where statistically compared to other years, we will see how how this year will fare. And the situation was like that. And we went and grouped ourselves together, meditated for several days together, and the scientists who are independent, they gave the results and show that there is a reduction in conflict, a reduction in crime, improvement in many social indicators. So even though for them it was unbelievable, what is this? Reluctantly, they said, but the, the research is real. We have to publish it. We cannot not publish it because we cannot have prejudice in terms of what we think the reality should be like, what we think the world should be like, what we think things should work. When something works, it works. And we predicted it and made it happen and it worked. And so this is a great hope and a great message today in the world for all kinds of situations, including conflicts, divisions in society, war, crime, even health and pandemics, if we have a greater clarity in the collective consciousness of the world, the world will be more able to find solutions. Solutions can be found on the surface. Of course, some scientists has to do the test and some research has to prove that it works. But either you have obstacles, delays, problems, or you actually find the thing right away. What it depends on? Simply the ability to see. And we can take a simple example. If all your solutions are there in the room, but it's dark, you have to go and spend time with your hands to try to feel this, not feel this, break this, not break that. But if the light is there, then you go quickly and you find what you need. The same thing. If the global consciousness is alert and awake, it's like light. That's why we call it enlightenment. If the global consciousness is awake and alert, there is light. And even those who are not themselves turning the light on, but they are living there, will help to find solutions and make better decisions and take society to a better place. So not everyone has to meditate, although it will be absolutely great, but for their own personal benefit, but for society, at least let's create a certain number, a minimum number of those who transcend 
through transcendental meditation and even the advanced CD program, and life will be better for everyone. And such beautiful wrapping up of all the things we've spoken of in, in, in over the past uh, several episodes and hours is one, the absolute foundation of Veda and the various texts that are, exist from India, the correspondence of that, the neuroscience, the physiology of the human body, and how something as simple as the spoken sound, vibration, mantra, shapta, has the power to lead the mind into the quieter, deeper spaces of consciousness, and how that small percentage, 1%, has the power not just to change our life, but the lives of so many around us in community. A powerful tradition. It's been an honor listening to you, and I know there are certain bits that still I want to talk more about. You mentioned entrainment and attunement, and as a dancer, as a musician, I see that correspondence between science of sound and mantra, nada, going into music, perhaps another uh, set of discussions on that. But as a wrap-up, and I'm conscious of your time, Dr. Nader, are there any unsaid things that you would like to say to kind of wrap up this focus that we've been talking about? Thank you. It's so beautiful summary. I would wrap up by saying we are all Veda. And people sometimes wonder why Marshi chose a kind of Western scientist like myself to speak on behalf of him in this way. And I think deeply sometimes one of the reasons is he wants everyone to know that Veda is a science. And in the same way as the laws of motion have been discovered and understood by Newton, and he is English, <laughs> it doesn't mean that the laws of motion themselves are English, although we acknowledge and recognize the English tradition that allowed him to think and supported him and allowed him to reach this. In the same way, Veda is not for any specific religion or any specific race or any specific belonging or habits of life and all of that. It's a science of life for everybody. For wherever you are, life is one and holistic and life is what we are and what we have. And Veda is there as a science of consciousness to give us, all of us, maximum benefits and enjoy it and appreciate it and spread it as something that can bring happiness and fulfillment for every individual and peace and growth and fulfillment for every society. Thank you so much. Namaste, Dr. Nader. It has been an absolute privilege and a blessing to spend so much time with you. Thank you so much. Namaste. The joy and pleasure were mine, and I look forward for any opportunity to be with you again. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.